Welcome, everybody, to Supporting Cast, the show about the undersung heroes of the film industry. You may not know their names, but you will recognize their work. With me, as now I think I can say always, are my co-hosts... Were we going to fire someone? Is that, was that yeah. one of the well, problems? I, yeah, I was here on a probationary period. <laughs> say, oh, we it pass? was definitely me that was on probation. <laughs> With me like, as always. I was <laughs> ready to get kicked from set, from day one. Do you have someone that you want, like, do you have like a dream replacement? Like, for me? Some, some like Hollywood replacement for you? Uh, Hector Elizondo. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> funny. Yeah, you <laughs> <laughs> the incredible yeah. improv skills yeah. of thinking about the only person that's been on your brain for the past week. Yeah, yeah. I, want, I, want, I just think we have the same energy yeah sorry uh with me as always <laughs> are my us. co-host charlie devonport hello and lincoln vickery hello nerds and i'm seamus quinn and this week we're starting a new mini series on hector elizondo which That's is right. very exciting so if you're new to the series or you're new to the pod what we do each week is we break down the careers of someone who might not be in the spotlight. And this week we are choosing Hector Elizondo, an incredible character actor that I think I'm just really excited to talk about. The thing that I am so excited to talk about is how much Hector is a New York guy. <laughs> it is so wonderful listening to him talk about New York. There's some quotes we've got uh, later talking about like the director of this film that we're covering today. But he's just, he calls him a mensch at one point, mm, which is one of, good. It's just one of my favorite like compliments that I just know that me, I would sound terrible if I said it about <laughs> yeah, someone. Yeah, you need a kind of um, confidence in your own masculinity and that I think both of us do not possess. You have to be like grounded in your own like manliness, which I think is certainly not our vibe. <laughs> certainly not my, I'll talk for myself. <laughs> yeah, and it's just Rick like- and I could pull it off? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you could call someone Is that some <laughs> kind of like level of irony or is it like kind of hot and I don't know. Yeah, it's that, it's yeah. hot. It's hot and ironic. It's hot to call someone a mensch. It's, it's hot it's and pretty ironic. Hot. So a little bit about Hector. Hector Elizondo was born in New York City, New York. His mother, Carmen Elizondo, was an accountant. His father, Martin, was a notary public. His parents were of Puerto Rican Spanish descent. When he was young, he originally wanted to be in a jazz band or a professional basketball player or a professional baseball player. And he was even scouted by the New York Giants in his team. He wanted to play baseball for one of New York's major league teams, the Yankees, Giants, or Dodgers, or else I wanted to play jazz or become a school teacher. This is still really so nice. New York, though. I like, know. everything yes. about this is uh, just like. I guess, I guess I'll, I'll either be a famous baseball player or a jazz musician. There's <laughs> only two options. It's New York. <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, he had a knee injury. And this is so interesting. Like, it's the classic thing of like sports guys getting an injury and then becoming theater guys later in their lives. Uh, like, specifically in college or late high school. Uh, it's like such a classic thing among a bunch of actors. I think. I don't know why this is the one that's coming to my head, but Peter Quill. What's that guy's name? The the guy, Peter Quill from uh, Star-Lord. Chris Pratt. Yeah, I forgot Chris <laughs> Pratt's name. <laughs> okay. We're doing a show about Hector Elizondo, and I couldn't remember who Chris Pratt was. That's good. That, I, I think actually that's think that's probably that healthy. Good. That's fitting. Same story right. with him. That shows taste. <laughs> oh, like he, did, he didn't get into he, acting he, stuff until, until yeah, he was He had serious. a shoulder injury uh, whilst playing football. Like, it's a really classic. That is a classic. And he also, he studied ballet. Yeah, from yeah, like 1962 to 63. Yeah, over the course of his career, like in between being an actor, 
He has been a conga player with a Latin band, a classical guitarist, a singer, a weightlifting coach, a ballet dancer, and a manager of a bodybuilding gym. Sick. Such like a- That's a great collection of things to do. That's a working actor in New York life. 100%. It's so sick. 100%. His first big role was in uh, The Great White Hope. No idea what that's about. I kind of didn't want to find out, but I do know that he played God in the guise of a Puerto Rican bath attendant. But this did- win him an Obie. So apparently he was great in it. I'm oh, not surprised. So it's a it's a theater. It's a, it's play. a play. Going on after that, he had several small roles in TV and film until really this was kind of his first big break. He appeared in the Taking of Pelham 123, which is his largest role up until that point and remains one of his most iconic. After this, he continued to do a lot of TV work. He was in Kojak and Columbo. He had two different episodes on Columbo. And then in 1978... He met Gary Marshall on a basketball court, making one of the most important, like, friends of his career, which we'll go on to talk about in future episodes. We, we will absolutely be talking about, uh, we'll we'll be talking GM, we'll be talking Gary Marshall. Um, All I'll say is I just hope that it was like an outdoor basketball court, like, you know, featured in the Upper West Side. Like, you know, in it, like, like, you know, like it's the most New York thing I've ever seen in my fucking life and he meets Gary Marshall there. Like, of course me, he fucking did. Me and Lincoln are about to fight. <laughs> oh, what? No, 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 oh, you go, you go, oh, you go. No, no, okay. hey, you take it. So this is what he says. Gary saw me before I saw him. I was a working actor in New York on Broadway, we finally met in 1978 on his basketball court (laughs) where he pitched me his first movie, Young Doctors in Love. Elizondo shared this uh, in an interview with Variety. Um, I didn't know who this guy was. I had inadvertently hit him in the face with a basketball pass. That's a bad pass, he said, but you're a terrific actor. I have a movie for you. And then, that's really good. It's that's so, so good. good. And then he pitched Young Doctors in Love, which was yeah, right. him and Gary Marshall's first film together. He then went on to appear in 18 movies with Gary Marshall. Like Hector and Gary were just apparently best of friends, just got along great and really sort of made his career. We're going to be covering at least one of his Gary, of the Gary Marshall films, Pretty Women. And then if Lincoln Pretty gets- Women? Pretty Women. Pretty Women. Well, Pretty Women, Woman 1 and Pretty Woman 2. Right. Pretty women. We're covering the pretties woman. So, yeah. So, I think we also do the Princess Bride. We should have this conversation. Princess Bride. Princess Bride. That, that's Princess real, Diaries. He's not in that, but he may as well be at this point. I don't even know. came for me for getting one letter wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, pretty women? I Whoa. thought there was only one. Well, well, well. No. Um, yes, I, the Princess Diaries is an iconic role for Hector. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, we didn't know whether we wanted to double up on Gary films. So, we will see how we go. But at the moment we've only penciled in one of them it's also the only one of these films that i have actually already seen what the princess diaries yes is the only movie that you have seen in your life (laughs) it's baffling to watch this podcast is us just showing shameless movies every time every time you watch a movie you're like and when's the big transformation where she becomes a beautiful princess (laughs) i am waiting for that in most movies especially in no country i wanted to see anton imagine (laughs) if the first film you ever saw was speed like that was it. Yeah. It's actually movies. a pretty good introduction. Yeah, actually, yeah. If I if I was going to pick the first movie to show someone to get them to understand what movies are, Speed's not the worst pick. Mm. It's not the best. It's not the worst. What would you? Well, okay, sure. <laughs> sure. Why not? Well, if if you actually, this is a question I used to ask about books, which is a bit weird because I don't read. Like, imagine this is grim. You're dead, and you have a child, and you God. want to give them one movie recommendation to sort of like. 
I'm sorry, I'm dead and yep. I have a child and I need to give them one movie recommendation. Yes. Before you die, right? Yeah, Is that the vibe? Like the one No, yeah. no, no, I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, you were it's not before I die. So are you haunting this child? Are you yeah. like leaving right. just like so a mysterious this DVD is like box? Interstellar style. I'm looking through the, the library, <laughs> yeah, the five dimensional library. Use Morse code and I'm a like push, and, and the thing that I say is Ponyo. <laughs> I'm going to leave the fucking ring. I'm going to leave the ring videotape. That's what I'm doing. Like Not even the seven, movie, like just the seven, seven days. Long. Yeah, that's it. I'm going to freak the shit out of my child okay. from beyond the grave. That's fucked up, dude. Sounds good. You are in a bad mood. <laughs> I think I got a little bit sunshine. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking, like, is it for, how old is this child and why haven't they yeah, seen a movie before? That's I also, if they're my child- how, how likely is it that they haven't seen a movie? Okay, have, so have in this scenario, this you, kid? You, you die in childbirth. <laughs> it's rare, but it does happen. Just, well, just like faint from shock and hit your head into like, Actually, while someone well, else is no, giving birth. It comes out and hits me in the head and I fall out a window. Yeah, it shoots out at too high a speed. <laughs> Sorry. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, I'll probably take you <laughs> take Are you crying already? <laughs> Yeah, so what's your I think thought? it would have to be a Miyazaki film and yeah. it would just be like which one it is. Maybe Castle in the Sky, I think. Oh, of course a niche recommendation. Castle in the Sky is a very big movie, but okay. Yeah, because that's like the most like fun adventure. It's actually like the one that I think is like closest to like more Western style, has less of the stuff that you also freaked out about the Miyazaki yeah. stuff. It's more just like, what if a guy and a girl went on an adventure? <laughs> yeah, look, I probably wouldn't leave the, the ring uh, videotape if that was the scenario. <laughs> no, I think that's, I think that's a locked in final answer. <laughs> what about Poltergeist? Yeah. <laughs> It's a bit longer. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think, for yeah, me. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. Seamus, what's your answer? I mean, it would either be, if I'm allowed to leave, leave three, it's The Lord of the Rings. Okay. Um, and then, <laughs> genuinely, I think Little Miss Sunshine. Like, there's yeah. something, that movie was just very formative to me mm. at a young age. It's about family. It's about love. And it's got Our Lady Beth in it. It does have Our Lady Beth you in it. You need to let Beth go. That was last week, okay? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let it go, dude. <laughs> I, I leave American Gigolo. Okay. <laughs> 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 I haven't seen it, kid, but Hector's great. Have we got anything else on, on old Hecty? No, that was uh, all the big stuff. I have a little bit of stuff before we get into kind of the taking of Pelham 123 of like him talking about it. There's an interview with him mm. talking about the movie. Um, I think it's called The Grey Zone or something. Shades of Grey. <laughs> shades of Grey. Shades 50 of, Shades of Grey. There's a book that he shades wrote. Shades of Mr. Grey. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, that's, oh, that is why it's that's called why that. That's why it's called that. Wait, did you not get that? <laughs> no, I was so, so Hector, was, Hector Elizondo plays a character named Mr. Grey, so the behind the scenes of it is (laughs) called Shades of Grey. (laughs) I didn't know. You just thought it was about the colour, like the colour grading or? I thought it was like. (laughs) Shades of Grey is in morally grey? Genuinely what I thought (laughs) was like, well, the train's grey. What? <laughs> the train's kind of grey. Like, the movie has kind of this, like, 70s New York thing. So I was, but also, like, I thought it was like, I thought it was like, a, I thought it was like a series of, and they were all called that. And it was all like, you know, New York movies in the 70s. And I thought there was some reason around that. That's kind of what I thought. So I was like, you know, concrete like. Jungle. Yeah, concrete Jungle. Concrete Jungle. Grey. Trains. Grey skies. Grey skies in New York. It's overcast. Grey, you know. morally grey characters. Morally grey characters. Yeah. <laughs> That's not New York. <laughs> Was that? I, I believe it was that Monsters was, Inc. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's her name, Fred? I thought yeah. you were a toy Darian from Star Wars. 
What were we talking about? Mr. The shades of grey. Shades of grey. He oh. was talking. He's talking about his role on on Pelham One Two Three. Uh, he talked about it was a job. He kind of just like got it and was like fantastic. He's just a jobbing actor. Just goes there. It was in Brooklyn. He lived in Manhattan back then. That wasn't so far away. Still feel mm. like that isn't so far away. But I'm sure oh. he's just like the damn subway line. Oh, what he said now is like I'd take a car. I'd get so lost today. Which yeah, is such yeah. A, <laughs> that's nice. Such an old man thing. Um, so he talked to Joseph Sargent, who he's. Uh, keen to mention survived the Battle of the Bulge. So he talked to Joseph Sargent for a while, like in, goes to the audition, mm. sits down with Joseph Sargent. They're talking for like an hour. And then Joseph Sargent just looks at him and goes, yep, great, you got it. Which is a lovely casting process by by Joseph Sargent. I have some stuff on Joseph Sargent as well, who is like a full kind of journeyman director. I don't have his list in front of me, but I think did a lot of caper pictures, a lot of stuff like that, just kind of, you know, did the work. Joseph Sargent talked about when he went and started um, filming there because he was from LA, because he was from United Artists. They flew him over there and then he started working on a New York set and everyone hated him because he was from LA and he's like yeah and I didn't realize there was this huge east coast west coast rivalry between like oh you're from Hollywood you don't know what it's like filming here which I think is kind of it's kind of bizarre to think about now that there would be maybe maybe that's still true but I'm trying to think of like I can't think of an example of anyone like being like oh Ari Aster's filming something in New York and like all of the New Yorker or New York crew is like "Mm, I don't think so anyway it might um, be more like that in television or something. I feel like I don't. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. I'm sure that I mean. Oh, in, in theatre. Yeah. Oh, maybe. You're yeah. In actually, LA, definitely. Out of show. Yeah, anyway, well, we don't. Anyway, sorry. Let's, let's go into this. Pick a <laughs> side. <laughs> and then Joseph Sargent was also talking about how they're making a movie, not a handbook on subway hijacking. And then he was talking to the LA Transit Authority, and then they were like, "You cannot have show the actual way that they stop the dead man switch." So, or, or is it that the dead man switch actually doesn't exist? No, it's that you can't show the way they stop it. And there's also other ways that you'd have to get around it. Yeah. Which is why I think that sequence in the movie is really confusing to look at. <laughs> it is It is kind of just like it happens and you just have to kind of assume yeah. why. Assume they figured out a way around yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and then um, Elizondo talking, to, talking about Joseph Sargent and how he was a mensch, as you say. He says, who knew how to snap the wood if he needed to snap the wood, which is... Something I'm just going to use all the time now. I love sure it as described. Have whole I got new that vote. wrong? Got a whole just, new I'm pretty vote. sure you just misheard him. Wait, what did he say? Uh, the full <laughs> quote is, uh, that was Joseph Sargent in a nutshell. A mensch, a gentleman, and he knew how to snap to work when he had to. No. <laughs> <laughs> I also was wondering, because he was in the war, what role he was. Because he would be private sergeant, corporal sergeant, or sergeant sergeant even. Oh, yeah, he would be Sergeant Sergeant. Sergeant Sergeant. Sergeant Sergeant. Sergeant Joseph Sergeant. (laughs) Great. Yeah, absolutely. He talks about how uh, New York in the 70s, everything was covered in graffiti. It was a canvas for the graffiti artists. It was gritty. It was tough. It was crime-ridden, like the classic Mm. image that you have of New York in the 70s. And the station that they filmed in was an abandoned train station that they'd made for a politician in the... 1800s. I, I looked this up. That's, yeah. what, that's what Hector thinks. Right. <laughs> Which is, that's great. Because I Googled it. I was Hector's like, wow. like me. Yeah, I was like, what's so, oh, that's such a fast. He knows how to snap the wood. He's but, just like me for real. <laughs> that's so interesting. There's a, somewhere made a train station just so a politician could get to work easier. No, 
No, they didn't. Great. It's just a train station that's in between two other train stations that had no traffic. Then went, uh, went on to become a railway museum. I like the way Hector tells it. It's much better. There was a politician in like the 1800s who had a subway station built close to their house so that they could get to it easier. <laughs> that's a better story and he's right. I'm the bummer of this podcast. <laughs> We're sick of this fact checking over here. You just don't know how to snap the wood, dude. <laughs> So Hector, <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> I, think I, I, I thought it meant like like crack the shits, but like in a in a way that's like more professional. It's like if if you need to like snap the wood, get everyone like that's in a line. horny interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you talking to? <laughs> and then he talked about when they were down there filming in this abandoned train station. There was no one there to stop us apart from the New York rats, and he describes them as beautiful coats. By the way, the size of cats. <laughs> he also talks, and Seamus, I'll let you take this over. He also talks about a famous gaffer who worked on the set of Taking of Pelham 123. That is, did we say that that's the movie that we're talking about? I don't think we've introduced it. So in case you were wondering why we're talking about Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever Mr. Grey is, we're talking about movie... Wait, what? <laughs> Lincoln was talking about that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about Taking of Pelham 123, not to be confused with the Taking of Pelham 123 numerically, which is a remake of this movie or an adaptation of the novel which it is based. So there you go. Yeah, it came out in 2006, 2007. Right, and this one came out in 1973? 1974, I believe. Four, yes. Shall we hop into it, actually? Yeah, should we dive in? I want to hear about the gaffer. You're going to leave me... Oh, yeah, no, 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 of course. Someone's going to snap the wood here. We've got to (laughs) talk about Fast Eddie. Fast Eddie. All I've got is his name and that Hector said everyone in New York knew him. Oh, okay, so you got I I thought you'd done a deep dive here. I didn't dive as deep as you, apparently. I couldn't find anything about a Fast Eddie. Yeah, yeah, I cannot find one that exists. And I think part of that is... Is like a lot of the credits for movies from pre 1980 something had all of the credits at the front, and it was just like who are the lead designers, who are the things. It didn't then list the entire credit yeah, list. No below the um, line. So there's no way for us to find out who the fuck Fast Eddie is. But if anyone out there knows Fast Eddie, because there's never been someone mentioned in an interview thus far that I've so desperately wanted to do. On the podcast. Because Hector Elizondo is talking about like all the crew and how wonderful they are. And he just off the like cuff mentions. And then the gaffer we had was Fast Eddie. Oh, you don't, you don't meet gaffers like him anymore. These guys don't exist anymore. He would just like with a a spare piece of tape and a pocket full of dreams. (laughs) Pocket full of scissors. (laughs) (laughs) He would just fix everything. And he was like, everyone knew Fast Eddie. You're like, you need something done quick, but good. You get Fast Eddie. He worked on every set. His name is Fast Eddie. And as far as I can tell, does not exist outside of Hector Elizondo's memory. <laughs> well, there is a fast food chain called Fast Eddie's, which might be a bit confusing. Oh, know? he did so well. <laughs> Maybe he branched out. Maybe that was Fast Eddie's. Hey, welcome, welcome. I don't know. I've got nothing. Do you want the light burger or the heavy burger? <laughs> you want a C stand? Fries. Okay, now uh, he described uh, Martin Balsam. Elizondo describes Balsam as like an open wound, an open heart, and kind of mm. as the opposite of Robert Robert Shaw, which I really love. I would love to do Martin Balsam one day. Who, of he's, course, plays Mr. He's Mr. Green, Green Martin Balsam, in this. who's he's also in Twelve Angry Men. Yeah. He's Driver. that guy, and I love the the just like compa- comparative description between Robert Shaw and Martin Balsam of like mm. Robert Shaw is this seems like a real tough guy to work with. He's like very patronizing and rude to everyone and a bit of a piece of shit but yeah loves ping pong oh i did not see that so robert shaw apparently made very good friends with the dop during this production because Mm. both of them spent a lot of the time in the front carriage so a lot of this movie takes place 
a very broad outline of the movie. These guys steal a train. Spoilers. And a lot of the movie takes place in the front car of the train where you drive it. It's the only part that's kind of like a separate set. And it was kind of pulled off and isolated where we just basically have enough room for the DOP and whoever was acting in it. And Robert Shaw spent a lot of time with the DOP and they started talking about how much they both love playing ping pong. Cool. And so they set up a ping pong table on the platform and in between takes, everyone would go play ping pong. No one could beat Robert Shaw. Sick. Except apparently, and I've only found this- well, no, the DOP. <laughs> Apparently the DOP is the only person who beat him. I imagine Robert Shaw has passed away now. I believe so. He died four years after this film. Well, if I if he could died come early. back and send me a message, I would love to know. If, <laughs> it's the ring tape. It's yeah, seven it's the ring minutes tape. of Samara. And it's just, I just want to know <laughs> if thinking. that's true, if he did actually lose to the DOP or not. Shall we dive into the movie yeah. proper? Yeah, let's, let's I get think on, so. Let's, let's get we, on board the Pelham train. Shall we get on board the taking of Pelham 123. Taking of Pelham 123 is a 1974 movie directed by journeyman director Joseph Sargent based upon the 1972 book of the same name by Morton Freegood. The film was released on October 2nd, 1974. Top of the charts that month were Olivia Newton-John's I Love You, I Honestly Love You and of course Carl Douglas's Everybody Was Kung Fu Fighting. Perhaps a sneak peek into the mentality of American culture's dismissal and othering of Asia that is also revealed in the movie. Also released in cinemas in 1974 was a movie. I'm so glad we found Lincoln's English essay on. (laughs) Also released in cinemas in 1974 were the movies The Conversation, Chinatown, The Parallax View. So this movie appears in a landscape filled with detailed procedural masterpieces. But what sets this movie apart, I think, is its light touch, a slight and never pushy comedic tone that Mathau kind of captains throughout the runtime. (laughs) The movie was somewhat well-received at the time, described as a punchy action caper, but not at the level of those other movies I'd mentioned and had some bizarre discourse surrounding it, including this from Village Voice critic Molly Haskell. What four men do to a car on the Lexington Avenue local in the taking of Pelham 123 is less of a hijack and more and of a high joke or a low one. <laughs> Who would pay a dollar ransom, much less a cool million for this car full of Jesus freaks, screaming mothers and obnoxious children, wise old ethnics, fat lady winos, prostitutes, everyone in fact. And as a regular rider, I can testify to their verisimilitude, but you and me suffering in silence. What New Yorker would want his tax money to go towards redeeming this rancid assortment of useless humanity? Holy fucking shit. What a rude lady. Wow. She really did not like she this movie. She really did not like this movie. She and didn't was like, like anything by the sounds of Her it. problem was the premise of trying to save 17 people is wrong. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 let them die. So she left this film and went, you know who was right? The mayor of New York. That's <laughs> that's the only character that she sympathised with this entire that's film. That's her take. She went, hot take, correct, you're right. Despite this backlash at the time, the film has grown to become a beloved classic, a calling card for Mathau and Shaw, and in my opinion, one of the all-time great I'm sick at home and just want to put something on that makes me feel good movies. Well, I think it's one of those ones that makes you not want to go to work if you're sick because you'll fuck up your entire plan. <laughs> That's what I'll say. Yes, It's a good cautionary tale. Talking about whether or not it was uh, successful, I saw one of the producers say that it did great in New York and it did great in London, any city that had a subway, and then it bombed everywhere else. Because everyone was like, I simply don't understand. What are trains? (laughs) What's going on? Why is it underground? Yeah, even Chicago is like, our train's in the sky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it being underground... Well, don't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's not a light rail. I don't want to know Um, about it. (laughs) 
let's redo the taking one, two, three. On the, oh, no, on the light rail from Glebe to Central Circular Quay. God, the uh, the monorail in Sydney is. It, does it still exist? Is it still up? It's what still you, up. Yeah, it's not running. The, the stations are still there. Well, you used to. I remember catching the monorail when I was like six, and it had the weirdest, ghostliest, most upsetting vibe even then. And that's where in, like, is the monorail because i don't think i was here when that existed yeah it got taken down in, in 2000 and no, actually not like it i think it was discontinued in like 2012 or something like that right. it was like i was going to say not that long ago a fucking decade ago i remember when i visited sydney i went on it but they're still like it would cost a lot to take them down so if you look up there's light rail tracks around the sydney it's really weird wait where like where look up uh, look up <laughs> well, <that's laughs> sorry donnie darko look up look up I was like, let's redo the Take of Pelham 1, 2, 3 as a monorail story. And then I realised that, once again, is just a Simpsons episode. Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 starts with an incredible opening score. It's all, like, oh, wildly Why is it so good? going off, like, saxophones and trumpets and, like, <clears throat> this kind of guttural kind of, like, uh, bass and drums that just, are, like, super percussive, super exciting. The whole, It goes through the whole thing. That's uh, by David Shire. I'll give you his, you know, a possible miniseries we could do with David. David Shire, Zodiac, The Conversation, All the President's Men, Saturday Night Fever, Return to Oz, Short Circuit, 2010, The Year We Made Contact. <laughs> yeah, that's seven movies. Put them in the Rolodex. <laughs> we have these kind of sick opening titles that are like subway train station lettering. Oh, um, I didn't even notice yeah, that. Yeah, I think it's like in the old style when it's all practical. It's all practical. You know what I mean? It's not digital. I think that's the kind of what they cool. looked at. Hector Elizondo is fifth build. And surprise, surprise, this movie opens on a shot of New York, mm. <laughs> taxi calls, honking horns. We see a man <laughs> carry a fa- Oh, we're gonna get a lot of that guy <laughs> during this whole thing. <laughs> a lot of this. I'm really I'm gonna give you a lot of this. I'm really excited for you to be doing the voices this week. Yeah, absolutely. We watch as a man carries a package into a subway station. It's Martin Balsam. Immediately we see he's like wiping his nose. He's got a bit of a cold and he gets on a train. We meet a trainee subway driver um, with his teacher who is learning the job, kind of learning all the signals, all of that stuff. The subway then arrives at 51st Street Station and we see our boy, we see Hector Elizondo with a wonderful moustache, which I was disappointed to discover was fake later on. Well, that's my note in this, because you do get a couple of shots of like six different guys with moustaches and hats. And I said, this is the most mustachioed movie I've ever seen. This, and then I, you're like, oh. Ah. <laughs> when that pays off, I was genuinely like, wow, they got me. So he adjusts his glass, glasses, enters the train. He's carrying a briefcase. I looked at it, it was like bang on three minutes. I don't know if you wrote down your time code for Hector. Uh, four minutes and 33 three seconds sorry our hectrons our- <laughs> sorry what well, did you did you did I you wake he- up in the middle of the night like six weeks ago with hectrons i did hectrons storing it here that's good because i i've got i've got something else Is it oh no hector elizondo then does some real gross acting to a lady on the train he is oh. extremely so this this i think is what is kind of interesting about this movie is we watch this kind of like New York theatre actor who's like uh, just starting into his kind of career in film and he starts with absolutely the most lecherous psychopathic piece of shit you've ever seen and then what he develops into over his years and him working with Gary Marshall and like 
that's kind of the fun of this sort of doing this sort of series is like you get to see someone grow and change throughout their career until like he's kind of a lovely old man but always end. plays like the person that will listen and not be judgmental and yeah. like that kind of thing i i um yeah it was a genuine shock for me it took me a second actually because he's wearing a disguise he i was like disguise, i went yeah. is that hector i was like hang on not my Hector. <laughs> not he would not do Hector. such a thing. And then I was like, well, that's him. And I was like, oh, acting, that's right. That's right, yeah, acting um, powerful stuff. Real creep, the licking of the moustache mm. uh, to that poor woman. And then he fucking grabs her thigh on the way out. Yeah. He's yeah. a, I mean, it sets it up perfectly. We know from the get-go that Mr. Grey is a piece of shit. Mm. Yeah. And he, you don't want to be in the grey zone. <laughs> even the bad guys hate Mr. Grey. <laughs> There's no shades of grey about Mr. Grey. Yeah. No, it's just all- an asshole. So we see the um, teacher of the trainee who was teaching him uh, the signals and stuff. He gets off at Grand Central, so the trainee is left by himself. And we see another mustachioed guy with a package enters the train. This is Mr. Brown. So you've got these three guys. They're all wearing huge coats and fake mustaches and glasses. And Mr. Brown, did anyone find the thing about Mr. Brown? No. What's oh, the thing about Mr. Brown? About Very Mr. Brown. good. So he is the stuttering Earl Hinman in this. Mm. Uh, he plays uh, Tim Allen's unseen neighbor in Home Improvement. No, oh, no, no, no. He's wow. Wilson. He's Wilson. That's Wilson. That's Wilson. <laughs> That's Wilson. Are you serious uh, right but now? I'm, I, that, as far as I can tell. What that, a range. What a, what range he has. <laughs> Does he just hate this half of his body? Because it's like disguised in a moustache for this one. So here's Wilson's a question. like this. Like, you know, is it just, I don't know. Is there is a, a home lot? improvement movie? There must be. Is there a home improvement movie? I know there's a home improvement game. Like a video game? It's famously one of the worst games ever made. Ah, yes. I kind of want to play it. So the teacher gets off and then finally we see Robert Shaw. He's waiting mm. for the train to arrive. Robert Shaw has such menacing presence in this movie. Like he has such like the, as soon as you see him, there's something about how grounded he is, how measured he is that is like incredibly captivating and like seems like he could be really scary if he wanted to and is like holding back. And I think that's really powerful. I think he's like a prototype for the Alan Rickman role. Sure, yeah. Yeah, that's what was my thought on this one. I was like, oh, we're doing speed again. Also, yes, sorry, that is something that I meant to to mention. It's just, this is like the prototype for speed. It's crazy how we accidentally just did this. Hmm. That this is just speed on a train. Was it an accident? Uh We now have to start with some sort of vehicle heist out of control. Every single Every single, we need to find it. That's the new. We're really going to have some trouble if this podcast (laughs) is going to go very long. Oh, no. So- Robert Shaw sees a guy who's dressed really well in like an orange jumper and a dark ochery brown coat. And he says, what's wrong, dude? You never seen a sunset before? And I love this moment because that guy, obviously he got dressed in the morning and he was like, if anyone's going to comment on this outfit, I've got the perfect response. He like looked at himself in the mirror and was like, kind of like a sunset. That'll be good. <laughs> I will say that this guy is credited in the uh, credits as Pimp, which is pretty unfortunate. Oh, that is that is quite unfortunate. I, I think this is as good a time as any to mention a sort of trigger warning on this particular film. There are a lot of uh, slurs used throughout sure. this film. Uh, it's very much a product of its time. I don't think that makes it unwatchable, but it's something to be aware of going through this movie. This movie is 70s racist. Yeah. It is. Although I will say that you're not supposed to be morally on any 
character's side in this film at all, except or maybe except Walter for the cop who's racist to a group of Japanese men. Oh yeah, but he kind of is meant to be a dickhead in that scenario. It he is. is yeah. meant to be. We'll we'll get to that in a they second. I do, I do have the, the whole point of that True. scene is he's an idiot. He's an idiot. I, I, I agree. That's what I think. I agree with you. Absolute trigger warning. It's like you know, it's just like yeah. in a way that's like shocking. But I think um, in terms of the reason it's still watchable is because it's a representing the 1970s in New York. Mm. B. I think most of the characters here are morally grey, if not even that. Mm. Like it's a kind of uh, you know not meant to be likable. Also hugely misogynist. That's another massive part of yeah. it. This is a 70s ass movie. I still really enjoyed it, I, but I think it is certainly worth mentioning. There's some dicey stuff in here. So don't go into it if you're not in the mood to go a few times. Robert Shaw holds a gun up uh, once the train arrives to the motor man and tells him, I'm taking your train. Hector Elizondo th threatens to shoot a guy's pee pee off, which is very fun. Hector Elizondo has a great quote about that. He, <laughs> it's just pee pee. That's a funny word. <laughs> That's just straight up classic comedy. <laughs> He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Uh, uh, saying the words pee pee is classic comedy. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Just, oh, sorry, basic comedy, which is even uh, better. The crims then take over the train. So they take over the, the, the control of the train, but the passengers don't actually know it yet. That opening sequence, it's quite slow. It's quite measured. And I think it is like, fully captivating. I, I'm like so in on this movie from like the first six minutes, which is like, I don't know, 10 shots or something. Then we cut to Mathau, who is asleep. He's taking a nap. Lieutenant Garba is his character's name. He is in introduced to some Japanese businessmen who are there to observe how the New York City subway system works. This sequence is very racist. And um, hard to watch. And hard to hard to wa watch. Our main character is says some awful things. And it's also just kind of meandering. And Mathal um, starts explaining the New York subway. Meanwhile, uh, the crims on Pelham 123, they keep the train moving. We learn Martin Balsam is dealing with a terrible cold and we kind of set up the rhythm of this movie. So we're cutting from the command center and Mathal and all of the people kind of surrounding the bureaucracy and control of the New York City subway system and Robert Shaw and his group of people on the train. It, the format is very similar to Speeds. It's uh, yeah. obviously a uh, very, very kind of an obvious reference Point. Except there's no um, Keanu Reeves character. There's no guy on the front lines on the inside. Well, Until there is. And, there actually is. But, but honestly, that's more, probably more of a realistic um, portrayal of what you would do if you it, were that it particular cop. It is certainly cop. a more yeah. realistic film than Speed. <laughs> Mathau introduces the businessman to Rico, who's played by Jerry Stiller. Mm -hmm. Oh, looking he's... hot. <laughs> Fucking A, dude. I was Hell like- Hell yes, is my guy. That, you know, Ben's dad. Uh, <laughs> Your friend is Ben? That I can't believe that my friend Ben's dad <laughs> is so hot. So we, my friend Ben's dad is in this movie. So then I was like, because I immediately went, Holy shit, George's dad from Seinfeld. Just iconically New York actor. Like, Absolutely. Just, it took yeah. me a minute to work out who you were talking about when you're like, <laughs> that guy's hot. I'm like, who's in this scene? Yeah, this is, he's, this, he's, a, he's a striking fellow. He's a striking fellow. Uh, I would say that this movie is not um, blowing you off the screen <laughs> with hotties. <laughs> I, I'm not saying that I, I think, everyone, you know, there is a certain level of charm and, and attractiveness to everyone in this movie, but I, I, I don't like look at this movie and go like, va, va, voom. I think it makes it more like realistic in terms of like, we're dealing with, you know, railway police force. Oh, no, like, oh, 100%. Like, it, 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 if they all look like I don't, yeah, I don't, It's not a criticism of the movie, <laughs> although have, that would be funny. I think film. it's a criticism I of want the movie. more hotties. Uh, excuse me, guys. Uh, I think the movie's wonderful. Uh, two, two notes. No. Maybe I was uh, grasping at straws when I was like, Jerry Stiller, hot. 
<laughs> need to thirst after someone. Uh, he's also like quite a horrible character in this as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Everyone's very bad in this. A cool glass of water in a desert, Jerry Stiller. Um, he says, we had a bomb scare yesterday, but it turned out to be a cantaloupe. Kind of setting up this idea that it's like, these guys, there's never really anything wrong. Like shit goes wrong and they shout at each other, but it's like a train slate or like there's never something like this. The crims. How good's the line? Um, this is our, our resident artist. I don't know why that made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's just like he's, just, he's like drawing on a thing. It's like, this is our resident, an artist in residence. And I was like, that is very funny. It's really good. And he looks so confused. So the crims stop the subway car. And this is like the thing about this movie that I love so much is that there is so much just detail. It is so much about, we kind of talked about in the No Country from Old Man, but it's like, I love to watch someone just do stuff. Like, just like do any sort of machinery, any sort of work like that. He talked, Martin Balsam's character talks about what, keys he needs for the train to go a certain direction. The trainee guy is like, oh, I didn't even know the train could go backwards. <laughs> and Which is really cool, but doesn't make any sense. Why not? Because trains, when they, look, I've read, found this, trains, when they get to the end of a station, they don't turn around, they just go backwards because you just mount the carts on the other It doesn't way. make a lot of sense that the trainee didn't know that. Is that maybe in modern trains and like no. in a subway, if you go around just the rails, don't the rails well, yeah, change? Well, yeah, because a lot change? of circle routes. The circle routes and the tracks change. No, they, they just go both ways. That's why so. it goes backwards. Just a weird, Plot like just a weird. For one, two, <laughs> resident, resident bummer coming back to you with some fact checking. <laughs> this movie sucks. Uh, I, I also like that in the start. Sorry, with the explaining how things work, I kind of think you have that with the the, the trainee as well at the start. I love where you realize that. them like just seeing how the old school way of like looking, checking, saying the thing, making sure it's fine. Like I I, I love all that stuff as well. Yeah, it's I, a really good like setup kind of dialogue, which I always love in a movie. I also think that this film, in terms of pacing, tone, how everyone is playing for the back fucking seat, like it's almost o- like the yeah. over-the-topness of these performances that are still so good though, like grounded, because you've got a lot of theatre actors in this, and mm. I think it works very well for the tone. It's interesting. I, would, I wouldn't describe uh, – yeah, that I, I don't think you're not wrong. Huge but I'm like, But I'm like – yeah, but they're just kind of like that's how they would talk to each other because they're like working in a big office, so it kind of yeah. makes sense. But I mean, I don't it know, works. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not like uh, I like it. I like the style, but it reminds me of I was saying I was trying to think of like what stylistically like it really works for this kind of thing. But it's kind of rarer to have these modern like in modern days. I think the thing that reminded me most of is like Burn After Reading or a Coen Brothers film. Mm. Like that's the oh, vibe. 100%. These kind of like outlandish characters in mundane-ish situations or like who have usually in mundane situations who then have to deal with something huge. Yeah. Uh, and they and kind then of, are still kind of dealing it with a, with a certain with, mundanity and like, yeah, yeah fuck it. But, hell. you know, like <laughs> Beth Grant's character from No Country for Old Men could have been sitting on that train happily. 100%. You know, like that kind yeah. of, just that sort of level of. Or Beth Grant's character from Speed, let's be honest. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> would have been more fitting. Like, Do all three. Do all Honestly, three. Put Kitty Farmer in there. Kitty Farmer would be I, great. Oh, I was trying to work out if there is any way that those could all be the same characters. No. <laughs> Great. Um, <laughs> so the command center realizes that Pelham 123 has stopped responding to them. Um, and then uh, Is that we Kaz see some. Delawats? Sorry? Is that Kaz Delawats? Yes, I believe. Oh. So we see some workers dealing uh, with Pelham not being in position, going missing. We cut back to them as the Crims move the front car forward by itself. And there's like, there's a bunch of people. It's like in a, it's not the command center. It's like a node of the command center. And it's just people that are like below Mathau and all of that crew. They're sitting around and normally everything goes right. But in this instance, something's gone wrong and they're not stoked by it. They're grumpy, but they're not alarmed or anything. No one at any point is like, oh, I'm free. 
freaking out. Everyone's like, hey, just another fucking day at the office. It's not even that. There's a casualness about the stakes of this movie from everyone not on the train mm. that is very unique to it. It's everyone's more disgruntled than they are upset. Everyone on the outside of Speed is like, we have to save these people. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Speed, they seem to be having the best time of their <laughs> life. I actually don't but know. They're, they're, yeah, they're, having, they're, ha- they're having the best time of their life, but with how important it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To their, it's like, this is way more. If they get the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, it's not going to change their, like it doesn't feel like it's really going to change their day so much. Because I think there's also that thing of like, a lot of this movie is about the bureaucracy and mm. it's a lot of like, is it really my problem? Like, I'm just here. To, I just press the buttons on the train. And there's man, a like. character that represents that really well who's in the office next to Walter uh, who is just, like, determined to keep the trains on schedule. Like, yeah, doesn't 100%. give a shit. He's just, <laughs> just like, like, he's upset because his friend gets killed. Spoiler. When do I get my trains back? So the, the crims kind of then reveal their guns and we see that the train participants now, like, know what's happening. That it's kind of revealed. I like that they're not packed loaded. I think that's a very fun little bit of sensibility. Yes. Oh, there's also something, like, a, a kind of famous piece of trivia about this is the train car was not allowed to have any graffiti on it. The so train the, car or any of the platforms. Yeah, yeah. So in real life, those train cars don't look like that at all. <laughs> the thing that I, this is the same sort of thing that I was saying before, but Hector Elizondo and Robert Shaw get their guns out and they're like, okay, we're taking over this train and everyone laughs at them. Like that's their first reaction. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful moment where yeah. you're like, and it takes them a little moment before they're like, okay, 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 we're taking you seriously. There's a line later in the film where a guy shouts at um, the hijackers, why didn't you just take a plane like a normal person, <laughs> which is such a fun reaction to a hijacking. The crims then take hostages. The The motorman is sent to collect the rest of the passengers. So they've just taken the front car mm-hmm. and take the rest of the passengers to 28th Street Station. We learn that Robert Shaw is hard-assed. Like he won't let the children leave as well. Like yeah. the mother and her children. She's like, could these guys go? The decision is like, no, even the children stay. This is very much the point where it's sort of shown that Shaw has this plan and he will not deviate from from it. It's like everything is clockwork. It really wants to be, it really emphasizes that Shaw is got this to like a minute timer, which is Mm -hmm. sick. We see Hector Elizondo be very racist and mean. And you kind of get the sense, especially in this moment, that he's the wild card. He's the guy that you can't trust. Mm. Mr. Blue, who is Robert Shaw's character, doesn't know him very well. Although they, none of them seem to know each other very well. Like they've kind of just come together. Like Robert Shaw's had this idea, has asked around, found these guys. I think Blue and Brown know each other. Yeah, Because uh, Brown continually refers to him as Colonel throughout the film. That's true. So maybe he's- to lead the yeah yeah, yeah 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 this is later in the film but I think it's implied that they're from the army together and they it's suggested that Hector Elizondo's character Mr Gray has been kicked out of like or like How been left from like do you I get don't know kicked out of the mafia I don't think that's I think you die mm. <laughs> like you get killed <laughs> or you're just so unpleasant to be around that they're like I'm sorry buddy you gotta go <laughs> yeah like it's a fat it's called a family guys <laughs> I just can't unhear Monsters Inc. Like Roz, is that her name? I, I can't just. How you doing? <laughs> You're out of the mafia, Mike Wazowski. <laughs> Robert Shaw then starts communicating with the bureaucrats at the command center. He says, your train has been hijacked by a group of heavily armed men. No one's really stoked about that. They have 17 passengers and the conductor hostage in the first car, and he's happy to kill any of them if they don't fulfill their demands. Walter Matthau hears that, and he turns to the businessman and is like, all right, I got to go. And they're like, no worries. Thanks for showing us around after he's been throwing slurs at them for the last five minutes. That's 
kind of a good bit to, and it shows that he is a goof. Like it shows yeah. that, I mean, it's still obviously racist. Probably but shouldn't also be a movie, very, it's, like, it's in the 70s. Yeah, uh, not not di- diving into it. It's a weird sequence. It is a weird sequence. <laughs> the fact that they, they know it's sort of like, they're also hold, I think they're in a much higher position of like where, they, where they're from. Like, you know, they're, they're position yeah, of yeah, powers yeah, and yeah, like yeah. Where, as in from the Tokyo, um, what is it? Sorry, what's the name of the word? I'm like, subway system. Yeah. But they're mm. friends with the director of the New York. Like, so they're kind yeah. of just like, it's, it's kind of that, I hate the sequence as well, but that little bit makes it slightly more palatable, well, I yeah. think. It yes. is interesting because uh, it preys on a very 70s anxiety of like the Japanese technologically overtaking the American industry. Like there's a lot of movies sure. about this, yeah. like Michael the Keaton, Sun. Gung-Ho. Like there's a ton of movies that play on that bit in particular. Yeah. Of Oh, it's so funny to pitch uh, oh, everyday guys against Japanese businessmen. At least you're right. This one does have like the note of, they knew you were being a dickhead, but they're too polite to say anything. Yeah. It's a 70s ass movie. It's a 70s movie. It's uh, the most 70s of 70s films that has ever happened. So then Mathau goes and tells Jerry Stiller, Rico, that a train's been hijacked. There's a really clean kind of lovely lines of dialogue where Jerry Stiller's like, what's going on? Mathau's like, you won't believe it. Try me. A train's been hijacked. I don't believe it. <laughs> That's good stuff. Uh, the, That's the, my sort of gear. The middle line is not just try me, it's, you know me, I'll believe anything, which is just good. It's just, it, I have that whole bit written down as like, probably my favourite uh, lines of the movie. Then we meet a new guy, the supervisor of the Grand Central Command Tower who goes down onto the tracks to find out what's going on. Shockingly, he's a no-nonsense New Yorker. He encounters the rest of uh, Pelham 123's passengers as they're kind of walking down to 28th Street Station and they tell him that they're going to sue very quickly and he... Hates that. Mm. Uh, this is this is Kaz Dolowitz. Yeah, right. Yes, this is Kaz Dolowitz. And we've met him before because he is the most stressed out man in the office. Yeah. He is hates that women have been added to the He's team. Not he complains. About that. He thinks that everything that's been going wrong is because they finally added women to the workforce. Well, at the top <laughs> of this movie, he's running late because he had to pick up a plumber because one of his workers dropped their wedding ring in a <laughs> toilet. I have never been more annoyed that a side plot isn't resolved. Did they resolve that he got the plumber? It's Yeah, but then the plumber just goes and gets it. And I'm just like, I don't know. I know it's not Chekhov's gun, but it's like the third thing that we find out in this movie. It's like... There's a train hacking, hijacking, mm-hmm. and then they, someone dropped their wedding ring on the toilet. Those are the two, the two stakes of this okay, movie. Okay, so give me your pitch <laughs> for what. How, how do you think that B plot ties into that A plot? Okay, so you, Robert, you know how the, it's keep keeps building up. The plumbing keeps building up, and suddenly uh, the the pipes burst, and then Robert Shaw gets really wet. Uh, I my, <laughs> the subway my, my, entirely. My thing is that there is another weird sequence about the end of this movie. Is that the runaway train gets stopped off screen? No is taken to stop the runaway train at the end. You know, it just keeps on going, skipping ahead, guys, sorry. This train goes fast at the end. It's speed. The train just keeps going faster and faster and faster. Yeah. And the guy keeps and then it on- stops where Robert Shaw said it to stop at South Ferry. No, it just stops because, no. and they say it in the background, it was stopped by an inbuilt safety feature yeah. of the train. Yeah, and Robert Shaw knew about it. It's because it, it, he goes, make sure the lights are all green until South Ferry. He says that earlier in the movie. It do- I'm sorry, but this fully does make <gasps> yeah, sense. Yeah. Robert Shaw sets that whole thing up. He knows that the train is going to build and build speed and then stop, but it's going to be really far away. Right. That's, okay, yeah. I take that back. But my pitch was that the wedding ring solves it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
My like it's the on wedding. the track. Yes, just that's like, what I was pitching. Sure, <laughs> I got to throw out half my notes. Sure, asks Mathau for one million dollars cash. <laughs> Mathau starts chatting to Shaw. They're kind of he's kind of nonplussed by the situation. Jerry Stiller calls in the police. There is a helpful police officer, Nathan George, played by Nathan George, is not the character name. The mm. character name is police officer, who goes after the supervisor that went after the train. Is something I'm going to say now. There's a lot of fucking characters in this movie, and trying to keep track of it in a kind of a legible sense is tricky. So then straight after that, we cut to the mayor. I think this performance is so fucking good. This, I know what you mean. Like this is playing fully to the bleachers. This, this is, is, mm. this is a stadium performance. I was performance. so taken aback <laughs> by this performance. And this guy's hairline, which this is guy, truly shocking. This guy's performance is like a late night talk show host's impression of Rudy Giuliani. It is the most bumbling cartoon Mr. Magoo mayor. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I've ever seen in a movie. I also love it to be fair. Also just the motif of getting booed everywhere is so funny. Yeah. And like, it's sorry, really, it really, keeps really going. Good. <laughs> so we cut to the mayor. He's not very well. And I love the, the detail that there's a cold going around. Like, obviously, it's the same cold that Martin Balsam has. He gets the call about the taking of Pelham 123. His deputy mayor comes and talks to him. And we cut back to the train. Robert Shaw talks to Balsam and says that Hector Elizondo is no good. Why do you think they threw him out of the mafia? <laughs> Something that happens all the time. So then the supervisor guy shows up at the train, tries to board and immediately gets shot by Hector Elizondo and the police officer behind him played by Nathan George sees that whole thing happen. Nathan George uh, then calls uh, Walter Matthau. So Matthau hears about this and is suddenly like, okay, they're serious. They actually are armed. They kind of confirms all the information. The police chief calls Matthau and that's when we learn that actually there's a plainclothes police officer on the train. That, I will admit, is probably, I think, the weakest part of this movie. I <laughs> Nothing think it, happens. I yeah. think it's the wedding ring of this movie. That guy needs to have the wedding ring on at the end of this movie. Exactly. To, for, to it to kind of fulfill there, its kind of premise. There are a couple of deliberate red herrings though. Like you think that's going to be a huge plot point. It's yeah. not really, it kind really of is at weird. the end. But also same the wedding ring same with a couple of things that happen in the apartment at the end so I think like you kind of think as an audience member that something's going to happen and then it doesn't quite well it just feels like we should uh, like in speed or whatever you would cut to that whoever, guy whoever it was and, yeah. and you would see him and you don't need to see much but it would be like there's a cl plain clothes police officer and then someone would just be sitting there and you'd be like okay he's going to come back later the other weird thing about this uh, subplot is that there's a plain clothes police officer on the train and then um, Walter Matthau goes a man or woman and the superintendent and whatever goes you know what I never even thought to ask and then all throughout the movie they keep on going there's nothing he can do especially if he's a she like yep. it keeps on being like what if it's a lady police officer he's in a she's in over her head they don't even know how to control the gun and then it's just a guy <laughs> It's the weirdest. It does. It does seem like it's setting up of like, be like a, a lady does something. A like, badass yeah. woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just, a, well, it does have a payoff and it's one of the worst payoffs in the movie. I will talk about it in a minute. Then we cut again to find a new character. Okay, there's a lot of characters in this movie. Uh, the police commissioner. And he's talking about, he's in a car and he's talked about how they've organized a bunch of police to go down to the subway. And he says, we could fight World War Three down there. He's talking to um, his deputy, who's also there, talking about how they're surrounded on all sides. How could they possibly get away? And then the police commissioner says, beats the shit out of me, Phil, which is a good line. So then we get a scene with a bunch of the kind of high
higher ups of the city. We're kind of seeing the bureaucracy, how it interacts. So you have the mayor, the police commissioner and the head of the transit authority and the mayor's wife. And the mayor's kind of talking about what's going to happen if I send this million dollars to these guys. What's it going to do for my people that vote for me? And his wife says, well, at least you'll know you'll have 18 sure votes. Yeah. Speaking of the wife. The wife. Did you recognise her? No, I didn't. Well, let me just uh, remind you of a beloved TV series I personally freaking hated as a kid. Everybody loves Raymond. It is Raymond's mother. It is. It is Doris Roberts. Doris Roberts. It took me a second and I was sitting there going, who the fuck? And I was like, no, it's Doris Roberts. That's so cool. Who's that iconic character in Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah, she's- uh, Huge part of that show with Peter Boyle. Is it Peter Boyle who plays mm -hmm, the mm -hmm, husband? mm -hmm. Yeah. Opening credits of that show is a slow motion version of Ode to Joy as she is arriving. Yeah. She is the Godzilla of Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah. And of this film as well. So yeah. <laughs> She's the sorry. She's the Godzilla. I sorry. I was looking at my notes. She's the Godzilla of Everybody Loves Raymond. In what yeah. respect? What do you mean? <laughs> she's huge. She's huge. She's huge, and she's there to destroy. She's huge, Tokyo. and she walks out of the sea. <laughs> so then we have a scene where Robert Shaw and Balsam are talking about Shaw's past. He was in the British battalion, but defected. Balsam was helping a gang sling heroin, uh, or was accused of it. Mm. And then Shaw's like, "Did you do it?" And he's like, "What's going on? You think I'd do a thing like that?" And then they both giggle. I think I think that scene's like. Masterful. I think it's like such a, it's like two guys with big kind of histories and backstories kind of talking about it in a really gentle, beautiful way. Completely different take on that sequence. I thought that was like this guy refusing to admit it because he's like, I wouldn't do that. They just needed a scapegoat. And like, there's no like, I didn't think there was any break at the end of it where they got closer. Like Robert Shaw like looks at him, they look at each other and then Robert Shaw goes... (laughs) That old scamp. Like he does. Yeah, like I think that. Robert Shaw does, but I don't think he's on the same level. I thought that was like a level of tension between them. No, I don't think so. I think it's just them getting along. I kind of agree with both of you, actually. But I read it. I read it mostly like that as well. Yeah. So you agree? I with think me. particularly Robert Shaw doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I sorry. I agree with you. Um, I, I don't just think, think it's important that we hear both sides. I think that that Mr. Green <laughs> is in like full denial about it, although he's yeah. obviously guilty. I think he's trying to convince otherwise. I, I fully oh, agree I think with he's you. Joking? No. Nah. No. Nah. Absolutely okay. not. He, he plays that dead seriously. A hundo. A hundo. He's and I think Robert Shaw is just like, interesting. Hit us That's up in the comments <laughs> if you watch this very particular scene in 1974's Taking of Pelham 123. Get in the Was comments. Was Mr. Green we joking or serious? <laughs> we want to hear from you. The hashtag listeners. Mr. Green serious or hashtag Mr. Green joking. <laughs> Vote here. <laughs> you might win. If you, sorry, no, that's not. We'll give you a signed copy of Taking of Pelham 123 by Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. The police, Jesus Christ, the police <laughs> let Mathau know that the mayor has agreed to pay the ransom. Mathau and Shaw talk to each other, and Mathau's questioning him about how he should do it. I love and that. Clearly, they get along. I love it when a villain and a hero, I mean, that those words don't really work in this movie, but like our protagonist and antagonist is like, they just kind of like, like each other. Yeah. They do. It's kind of a very soft, like, yeah, man, in another life. Like a weird respect for Noah, apparently. Yeah. Like he understands it. I think we get to see Walter is like actually quite switched on. We see like that character 100%. is switched on. I think the idea is probably that he's wasted on this office job kind of. Like, is that what the yeah, vibe is? Yeah, maybe it's or something like, like that. He should be, but, he should be a criminal. I don't, I don't he should be Mr. Want, Pink. I yeah, don't know. maybe he should be Mr. Pink. <laughs> I love that it's just a million dollars. I know, I love <laughs> that it's just a million dollars. I love, like it's so- They updated it for the uh, John Travolta film. 
Oh. I, I think it's more than a million dollars in that one. Because, I, I, yeah, actually, I need well, to look this I up. was thinking about it because I wonder if that's if the $3.7 million that they asked for in speed is bang on the inflation. <laughs> like, that's the thing. I was like, wow. And I then bet to, it fucking is. I bet it's bang on, like, if you did the inflation <laughs> from this movie to speed. It's 3.7%. Okay. What's the money? It would be 6.2. So uh, he demands Howard 10 Payne. million in 2009. Ryder, John Travolta's character, who yeah. is who is the uh, version of Howard, Howard Shaw? No, Robert Shaw. <laughs> Howard, <laughs> Shaw. <laughs> Howard Shaw composed The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, he demands $10 million. So, you know. Okay. That's, yeah, so that's pretty close. Like Dennis six... Hopper's kind of lowballing the yeah, cops in speed. Yeah, he is kind of lowballing. Oh, no. Sorry. That's sorry. Hang on. Welcome we to the financial cutting cost any of this out, baby. I want to know. <laughs> Let's do a series. Is this heist worth it? I think that's good. It's oh, like, yeah. it's like do you think it's genuinely worth it for, like, it's not worth it. I'm not going to kill fucking 10 people on a thing. But, like, does this actually make financial sense? I think we just do an inflation podcast about amounts of money in movies. <laughs> Yeah, one million dollars. That's exactly what I thought. He was one like, billion dollars. Uh, Walter Matthau, the the inflation. Well, okay, what is it? You Four and first. a half. You're excited, right? Ah, Four and a half is pretty close that's to three point seven. Oh, okay. Right. So it's from getting... 1974 to 1994, one million dollars goes from four point. Uh, sorry, one million dollars to four point four eight five million dollars. So Look, for one guy, he only just wants the money to like retire. Well, I know that's, that's the thing. his Howard entire. Payne's working by himself. Well, yeah, yeah. and paying. Yeah, because um. Shaw has to split it between five people. So they're each getting like $250,000. It's it's like, I mean, it's not. Well, but if it's 4.1, then it's 1 million each. There's only much. four people, right? We're talking about inflation. There's only four. That's true. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's giving some to <laughs> To <Walter> charity. <laughs> to charity. <laughs> Shaw lets the train passengers know they're being released once the money is there. We start the process of getting the money onto the train. There is a great sequence at the New York bank and it's just detail of money happening, which I realized is maybe my favorite type of sequence in any film is mm. just cutting to money going... Yeah, and then there's a like cut out to the cop where it's like, why is it taking so long? And he goes, um, have you ever stopped to think about how many times you have to wait your thumb to count a million bucks? Really well, good. ladies and gentlemen, I did. Fifteen hundred. <laughs> Wait, what do you? Hang on, what do you mean? You'd have to lick your thumb fifteen hundred times uh-huh. to count a million dollars. Out of what? Out of what denominations? So the amount of denominations this that are requested. Show is about money. This now. is <laughs> about money now. So he asks for one million dollars, half of it, five hundred thousand in fifties and five hundred thousand in one hundreds. Yeah, so specifically. But if you assume you have to lick your thumb every ten bills, that would leave you having to lick your thumb fifteen hundred times. Don't forget the two rubber bands. I like that bit. So yeah, I like. <laughs> Yeah. Two, two rubber bands. thick two rubber, bands. rubber bands. Yeah, thick rubber bands. And I, I like the sturdiness of that. That's like, they're easy to pack into a jacket. I like it. <laughs> Guys, I really want a rubber train. Uh, I'll, I'll clarify that. 500,000 divided by 50 is 10,000. Then 500 divided by 100 is 5,000. So assuming you might need to relick your thumb, uh, it's a total of 15,000 bills. So assuming you might need to relick your thumb uh, once every 10 bills, that brings you to a total of 1,500 thumb licks for a million bills, which I then worked out would take about <laughs> 17,000 seconds, which is not enough time. <laughs> luckily, there's no way they could do it. Luckily, Sorry. there's multiple people counting the money. I didn't, I didn't work out that. <laughs> 
that whole bank working on it. I think I think what would be real. You're out of time. What would be really good in the edit is if you speed that up to like like triple speed, particularly because our faces are just like this, disassociating. So God, with inflation, it'd be even harder. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry, with inflation, a million dollars is still a million dollars. But assuming okay, so if he asks for four point one, you can take times that by four. Point one. <laughs> Point one. So that's it's still the same amount of of notes you're counting. No, because if you inflate it to four point one million, there's more notes. Yeah, but the amount that they're counting is one million dollars. Yes, right? that's right. So, so that's kind of what I was saying. Like it doesn't automatically <laughs> turn into more money. If someone asks for a million dollars, if someone asks for a million dollars now, and then in twenty years you give it to me, I still need a million dollars. It's a million dollars. It's inflation. The notes get bigger. <laughs> so I thought you were trying. So to it's say harder it. to count them. <laughs> it takes double the time. That would be good if inflation actually just made money bigger. That would be um, great. The machine that was like spitting it out, was that randomizing it or was that counting it? I, I don't know, man. <laughs> you said you love- I don't know, man. You said you, said you love money sequences. I do love money sequences. I, I guess because he asked for the serial numbers randomized. So yeah. there, there's a thing like, oh, is that just spitting the cash notes. out? Yeah, old notes with serial numbers randomized. Yeah. Right. Non-sequential. But I don't so know So they would be non-sequential specific- anyway. I don't know what that specific machine is doing. Well, I I've never worked in a bank. I would with like a research to. guy. No, I, wouldn't. I, I don't want to work in the, Yeah, I'm, God, I've failed. I've failed myself as the research guy. We figured out how many times you could lick a thumb, but we can't <laughs> figure out that machine does. So, You're sorry, everyone. I, no, I think <laughs> so we cut back to the mayor and he's getting a butt injection and the vice mayor tells him to make <laughs> a speech about the hostages. <laughs> that is one of the craziest cuts. Oh, oh my god! Also, the music that happens over the Reserve Bank is the second hypest music in this entire yeah, thing. Yeah, fucking rich. It, it almost becomes like proto techno. It's so hard. It's so good. It's yeah. a great soundtrack, just in general. And it's um, just Reserve Bank. So the mayor is getting a, a butt injection by, by a lovely uh, nurse who's helping him out, and then the vice the vice mayor tells him to make a speech about the hostages. I know I already said that, but just in case, just in case we missed it, because we were thinking about the mayor looking really depressed and having a huge needle jabbed into his ass. Mm. And then Mathau kind of figures out um, that Martin Balsam's character is an old motor man, and so he's like, "Can you get me a list of old motor men?" It's the exact same premise in, as in it's speed. Bang on speed. Elizondo gets in a confrontation with one of the passengers on the train. He calls calls her a 20 buck an hour hooker. Apologies for the language. Elizondo gets fresh with Robert Shaw and then Elizondo, yeah, and Elizondo says, I've always done my own killing. And I think that's some sort of reference to Shaw's past and about how he worked for the, for the uh, oh. for, foreign league. You foreign missed league. her great rebuttal. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is- you couldn't even afford a goodnight kiss. The cops get together the money and they start driving towards the train. There's not enough time. Mathau's stressed. They're running like a minute and a half, two minutes late. And so Mathau convinces Shaw that if they get it to 28th Street, then that counts. So they don't have to get up to the train itself. Mm. And Shaw, who has been completely unmovable for this entire time, says, okay, if you get it to 28th Street by that time, then we will, like, then that's fine. Specifically, his threat is every minute you are late, a passenger dies. So the cops are driving the money and, like, they're like, all right, we got to go fast. Immediately hit a bicyclist and turn over the cop car. And it is so funny. It's, it's, <laughs> this movie is genuinely hilarious. It's like the moment they go from, they, like, turn their lights on and then they're like, okay, we're going from 20 miles an hour to 40 miles an hour and then immediately crash. So Mathau then has the idea, of course, to convince Sean that the money has arrived. It has arrived or not because he can't see the money. So Shaw gives Mathal the instructions for the delivery of the money now that he believes that the money is at 28th Street Station um, and two unarmed policemen, one with the money and one with a torch is, is like how he wants the money to be 
delivered. Then we cut back to the young cop, Nathan George. He is pretending he's shooting Shaw's gang, which is kind of a bizarre thing to do. I, I mean- No, I, I, I get that sequence completely. I think that's like- That's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> you be like- pew, pew. Exactly. Uh, if I, I, look, I'd never be a cop. I would never make it through. <laughs> I'd lose my service weapon day two. <laughs> so like, I would I, I would be in that sequence. Someone would be like, why are you doing it? It's like, lost my gun. <laughs> but also I would get bored and I'll just be like, yeah, it's, it's, it reminded me very, it's a very video gamey kind of call of duty thing of like. Also it's it very sets childish. the visual gag of when he does the fake shoot and then a real bullet and happens. And then a, and a, a like, real bullet does Holy, what the fuck? Yeah. A gunfight then breaks out after that shot. Elizondo lose grip on his control and fires wildly into the tunnel. Everyone talks about how a police officer in a dank tunnel with a sniper, sniper rifle who thinks he can get a clear, clear shot maybe tried to take it or he slipped or he was just bored. Or I it was Seamus And my take is so- nobody <laughs> that can't not shoot a gun for an hour should ever have access to a gun. If you're like, I've been sitting here for like half an hour 45 minutes i'll just fire one off I, you should not have access well, to any sort of firearm i think it's really really good because i think it's like not in terms of like police officers <laughs> you believe that police officer was morally right <laughs> i um, no, it's a criticism of police officers right? yeah, 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 it is. Yeah, yeah i think my favorite depiction of how a hostage situation goes bad i've ever seen because i've never seen one where it's just one of the cops slipped which yeah. feel it just feel felt really real to me, which mm. I really appreciate. So one of the reasons why I don't mind the plain clothes cough cough. <laughs> Sorry. Uh the plain closed cough. <laughs> Are you okay? The plain Oh no, it's okay. Guys, it's plain okay. Closed the cough. plain clothed cough. I uh-huh. did it. The reason why I don't mind it is because I think that we see here what happens if someone takes a situation into their own hands and causes mass casualty. For this guy sits back and kind of does the right thing in terms of how someone who is an undercover cop would should kind of handle the situation until the sure, end. Sure, okay. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. also think that we see this earlier with the guy who gets shot first, who just like walks up to them and is like, you gotta take a point. Like, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. like people just believing that they could just be heroes in charge and not take things seriously, getting punished for it in this film. Mm. And I think that that's why, although it seems weird because we're used to storylines of like, but there's like an undercover cop on the plane. Like, it's kind of like, he sort of did the right thing. Uh, maybe he's the real hero after all. Yeah, he's very much. He's very much. He's very much the anti Keanu. Like it's yeah, like, but he's doing a good job because Keanu yeah, does objectively well, a terrible job. Bu- he's not in the bus in the first one. He has. Yeah, I guess he is the anti Keanu because he tries <laughs> he to get be, on there so bad. Yeah, he, he would be if the train conductor managed to get on. That would be Keanu's character. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. If he got Oh, I would watch that movie in a heartbeat <laughs> with if Kaz, it's just Steve, but it's, the, it's Kaz. <laughs> He's under the train. <laughs> oh, he kisses, let's say, Walter Matthau at the sure, end. Sure, sure, sure. Sure decides that someone needs to pay for that misstep. He tells the conductor to go and uh, get the money. Um, and then as the conductor, the trainee conductor is kind of stepping out into the thing, Robert Shaw shoots him. It's pretty rough stuff. Robert Shaw is very, a very serious customer. The cops delivering the money then go double time to deliver it. They start running down the subway station. Um, Shaw and the gang get the money on the train Shaw checks it immediately which is what <laughs> Dennis Hopper's character should have done before he I mean he was just overjoyed with the opening exploded. Yeah, Shaw yeah, yeah. tips it upside down onto the ground yeah. which is a, which was it's great because they immediately split up the money among their own person which yeah. I think is a really nice little detail one of the most interesting things that going back to seen before is we have Hector saying to Shaw mm. we have him saying I do my own killing and then we have Shaw shooting yeah, yeah, he does 100%. do it. And then he turns around and he looks I didn't at notice Hector that. That's sick. And he gives him a look. That was like, 
if anything, more just proving like he was, you know, his ego was hurt by that comment. Yeah, and it's yeah, like, yeah. oh, you don't think I won't do my own killing? I'm going to do it. And also the mo- the moment in the film is that we have that is the most kind of like only serious bit, I think, in this entire film mm. is when he selects the trainee conductor and the music kicks in. That's kind of like actually for the first time, like dramatic music comes in. Yeah. And it's sad because we this guy is, we, we see at the start, he's got death flags all over him though. At the very start, oh, 100%. he's like, can't wait, gee whiz, mister, get to do my exam and like get out of here and like lead oh, a better gee, life. Well, like, oh. I'm just so excited to be here in New York. Yeah, like the city of dreams. <laughs> that, that's literally La, it. La Land. <laughs> but like that actor was good. I actually really liked him and I was sad when he was picked. And the, and I think that the, we have these, um, you know, the passengers in the train who've been, you know, kind of, Playing, playing a lot for laughs a lot of the time. Like yeah. they're very, they're all great and funny, but this moment, like they're quite frightened. And there's a girl's like, he doesn't want to go with you. Like they kind of have this. Like it's, I think it's really good. And it's the only bit of dra- like serious drama that happens in this film, and it's really good. Yeah, yeah. it's the most harrowing. Sequence. But yeah, him looking at it was my favorite moment actually because you went fuck. There's some tension between these two. Obviously, we get that from the start, and then you realize how fucked up or how actually dangerous this bad guy is. Yeah. Elizondo and Shaw and, and Brown and, and all of them, they start loading this this money into the cute little vests that they've got. I really like those vests. Mm. I think I want one. Just um, to load up your $3.7 million. Dollars. Yeah, Sorry, right. I would definitely take a vest filled with $250,000. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Inflation? A million. Um, Shaw gives the <laughs> big vest. But how many times I, do you lick your thumb to cat? Sorry. I did Sorry, have that no. thought. It was like, this plan wouldn't work with inflation. Uh, Shaw gives it the wouldn't. requests for their escape. He cl- wants to clear all hostages and making sure all the lights are green all the way to South Ferry. All train stations, not hostages. All the cops are involved. They're trying to figure out how the the, uh, the gang is going to get away. The train starts moving. Grand Central Tower calls the command center who sees it. It's too early. It's earlier than um, Shaw said on the phone. Mathau then explains to one of the cops he's driving with now the dead man's feature, which is that a guy's hand has to be on on the train's go button, basically. They call it the go button in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if it's not, the train stops. Um, Shaw's team stops at 17th Street and they start fucking around with pipes and stuff, basically tricking the train to not worry about the dead man's feature. It is a kind of bizarre thing where it kind of cuts away and doesn't explain it when it's the movie has been so intricate in explaining every single detail. Yeah, and your whole thing about, like, you love watching stuff like I love watching hand, stuff. Like, like hands being <laughs> close-ups of hands taping up 100%. everything in No Country for Old Men that uh, Josh Brolin does essentially yeah. is so sick. And this is for me the most disappo- uh, disappointing part of the movie is that it is filmed so vaguely and at such a, such a distance. They're just kind of handing pipes to each other and whispering and, and just like- being like, "Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> she ain't going nowhere. That'll yeah. hold." And I'm just like, I have no fucking idea what's going on. I guess I mean it makes sense now. I know that they weren't allowed to show. Yeah. That. That's yeah. cool. I, I kind of like that more. Yeah, right. Okay. I like the fact. I like the fun fact. Like the Easter egg behind it. Because it didn't bother me that much. Absolutely. I went. Yeah, sure. They yeah, figured it, it out. Doesn't, it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't bother me <laughs> that much. It bothers, it's just like. Well, I guess the, depending on what perspective you're going from, they never. They don't really know either. It's just no. kind of fun. Like we don't know. Yeah, so like, you <laughs> come back to Mathau. He's like, they must have fucking done it somehow. <laughs> yeah. It bothers me a little bit because there is this very late setup of the dead man switch. Like it's right before this, mm. and then. 
they're like, so it can't be that. That's a good idea. And then it is just their first idea, except, well, maybe the dead man switch doesn't work. I think in the book, it probably would have had a couple of more, like I imagine it would have had a lot of reference to people would have thought about that. And it's like, we can disregard that because it's physically impossible. Apparently then- the book is a lot more detailed yeah, and there's imagine. more than just the dead man switch. I feel that is a missing link in the movie, like a wedding ring and a toilet. Mathau decides to send police to every station and go down to the actual train station himself uh, because he's now suspicious that something is going on, something with the dead man switch. Uh, Mathau gets in a car with a police inspector. He tries to get the jump on the train by going further than where the train would actually be. But then Shaw starts moving the train again, but this time without the crims on board. So it's just the Mm. passengers. They start moving off uh, and Shaw and the team are at 17th Street. So the police officer who has been on the train the whole time dives off to chase them. We never saw this guy. I you uh, do you do see him. He is there. Every other character has a line or like at least a shot. Mm. This long-haired mustachioed man in a poncho mm. came <laughs> at me out of the darkness <laughs> like the thing from it follows. I was so confused. So was I, but did you try and guess who it was the whole movie? Because I thought it was going to be the woman. Who I thought, thought was it was going yeah, to be yeah, yeah. the drunk woman asleep because it keeps on being a dame. And I'm like, that's like, the biggest setup. It's like she's going to like at the end pull a gun out from like her bag and just be like, I've got you, sure. I've been faking being asleep this whole. I was so like, there's got to be something because I keep on going. It's a dame. You've this, never said this, the word dame more often. <laughs> I've never seen a movie use it's the a word classic more. Guys and dolls, the dame. <laughs> I feel like I totally get what you're saying. And I think this film is full of red herrings in that way because you see that drunk woman pass out and then you see a shot of the alcohol bottle sliding. Do you also and know I that went- was a harsh cut from the same footage? So it when, when the alcohol slides down and then um, Shaw pushes the alcohol bottle under the train station uh, train seat to start talking to him, That's uh, it's like a cut on the same shot. I don't know how to describe it. Like it's a jump cut. A match cut. It's a match cut, but yeah, it's right. off. Okay. It's like really off. Like uh, I, right. was, I, I went back and Not watched great. it three times. It's like, a full inch difference in the bottle. <laughs> the way you watch movies is sickening to me. <laughs> the no, that you like see one thing that's wrong and you're like, I've got to go back. I've got to go back. I've got to figure it out. I, yeah. Uh, I that's just, fucked up. Um, uh, but I fully <laughs> thought that that was going to be like, the cop was going to like set it on fire with that. Like, I will like use the glass to stab him. Or like, sure. I thought that was, and I thought it was going to be, actually he does, the alcohol does come back. It's just him drinking it in the front <laughs> thing. It just has how much, how much, <laughs> oh, I can't I wait to get this? back to my opera. <laughs> I keep saying this. Uh, so it's just him drinking it in the front uh, compartment. But yeah, a couple of things like that where you're like, ooh, I can see what's going to happen next. It just never comes off again, which yeah. I think is deliberate. But yes. I, yeah, I think I think it is. I think it's also th- in the apartment there's scene. also a thing of like this is something that people talk about in seventies movies all the time. But like shagginess of like that um, Hollywood strictures of setup and payoff were not as like it was much looser, and sometimes that can lead to things that don't feel as satisfying, but also kind of leaves the movie in kind of this kind of like shaggy zone which like I think is is much more suited to kind of sitting down and vibing with something rather than maybe going back and watching something three times while you're to like check if it's okay like to check if it checks out you know what I mean I mean I I don't mind it but this movie I'm approaching it excited about the plan Mm. like it's set up that this guy repeatedly has never made a single mistake and it is obviously a thing of movies building on movies heists getting more complicated and schmicker you don't get speed without this yeah, you and don't you don't get, get this without like Rafifi yeah. or and like you, those kind of exactly. like- Exactly, they all they all learn from each other standing on the shoulders of giants. But it is a thing of me watching this movie and just feeling just a little bit of like, 
disorientation. Where's the promise of this plan? Like I love, yeah. I'm also in a heist movie. I love plans. I love to see the mechanisms of that. It's something that just makes me happy in any media. And this movie kind of, yeah, is is not in that It's not zone. that. It's like, weirdly it not doing that at all. It's much more about like, this, is, this, this plan is just, also, I think- there is no tension, re- like there is no tension for the main characters really about whether the money is going to get delivered or not. Like there's no real tension for Matthew. It's just like, I've got to send this up the chain. He sends it up the chain. 20 minutes later, he gets confirmed. Yes, the money's coming. Like there's mm. no there's no tension in like, the mayor's not going to pay it. They're just like, nah, all right, I'll pay it. And yeah. like, there's, no, there's none of that like heightened, like, oh my God. It's just like, no, this is bureaucratic kind of normal it just kind of goes along yeah. which is what i like about it because i Me think too. that when yeah. you get yes. to the train and when you have that's why it's important that we have got the trainee conductor getting shot and that actually happening and the stakes suddenly being more yeah. real i think that that adds to it because I, I i yeah i think it's i know what you mean like it, if you long for kind of like a, an intricate plan that's gonna be successful this this film ain't it i mean Look, it's, it's exciting to know how they're gonna get out of a fucking tunnel turns out to be very simple extreme um but that's okay it's certainly grounded like i'm yeah. not I, and that's not a bad thing it didn't sing for me in the way that i think it sung for both of you this mm. movie is a comedy right like it's straight 100%. up is a comedy oh, like it's kind of just that kind of farcical it's like a, i i think it's a straight up comedy comedy caper i think is yeah. like the mm. you know what they would call it at the time is like a comedy caper yeah mm. the pelham one two three is in motion we see the passengers realize that no one's driving the train they try to stop it themselves but they're unable to so the cop the undercover cop who died off the train sees shaw and their gang take off their hats and reverse their coats i love that they have reversible coats always fun they take off their mustaches i also wrote oh hector elizondo's bald i actually thought the hair under the cap was um but yes he, so he was bald in 74 Hour kind of then figures out the plan just by being like, I just reckon he, it is the, the same thing. It was like, it's not kind of a satisfying way, like where he figures it out. He's just like, I have an intuition. They've just let the train go and they're, yeah, they're like, by himself. That He's, thing I mentioned two scenes ago, oh, I just don't, I'm just going to ignore it. Shaw shoots Elizondo after he tries to take one of their machine guns out into mm. public. Then the undercover cop who's been hiding shoots Mr. Brown, RIP. And then Shaw kind of immediately is like, like things are going to start to go wrong here really quickly. Mm. Martin Balsam escapes from a fire exit of the subway and Mathau comes in just afterwards, which is a really, it's the same thing. Like that's a comedy moment of like Mr. Green leaves and then immediately Walter Mathau walks in. Uh, so just whilst we're here, one hour, 27 minutes, 57 seconds, exit Elizondo, which I wrote as, which was meant to be, so exit sounds like Hector. <laughs> Sorry? No, Hex- no, 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 no. Hexit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hexit. Hexit. Hexit Elizondo. Hector. Hexit. Yeah, Hexit. That kind of sounds exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. Hexit. Hexit on stage, left Elizondo. Hexit Elizondo, pursued by a bear. That gives us one hour and 24 minutes and 33 seconds of Elizondo. (laughs) So to this sequence, I really love how he goes like the uniform of like, Mustaches, they all <laughs> it's really, like really good. coats and then hats. And then like, Hector, I, he's like, Oh, why are we doing it like this? Let's just take him off. And he's like, No, we're doing it by the book. <laughs> and I'm like, What is going on? Because he's an, uh, I love it. It's and obviously showing the disdain those two characters have for each other. He's, he's, like, he's from the like the Legion, like what, legion. whatever the rules are. It's like, This hats, is what we mustaches to the time. That's coats? his character. Yeah, it that's, makes sense to me. His character is funny. consistent. Yeah, and I love yeah, yeah. it. And, and Hector's not, Hector is as well. Like, to be fair, the thing that comes back the most in this movie, the mustaches. Paid off. 
That was my. That was the time I most had a heist feeling moment. Is when they, <laughs> literally, when they pulled off the mustaches. It was my most Ocean's Eleven like, ooh, <laughs> I saw that earlier. So yes, Martin Balsam escapes. Um, so Mathau finds Shaw down in the subway station, and this is this exactly the sort of thing that you're talking about. Like in a modern movie, I'm sure in the 2009 version of this, although I, I meant to watch it, but I didn't get to watch it for this. There would be a gunfight. There would be a thing. There would be something here. I'm not saying that's what you wanted, but it's like. That is what this movie is. It's like Mathau gets down there, aims a gun at Robert Shaw, and Shaw goes, is there a death penalty in, in this state? And uh, Mathau's like, no. And he's like, and then immediately Robert Shaw touches the electricity line on the train and the third fries rail. himself. The it's third so rail. right. It's a wild ending, and I was sick. here for it. I love this ending. It is so, well, it's not the ending. Oh, the ending is the ending. But this little moment of instant. Robert Shaw doesn't stop for a second, is just like, oh, well, and then he's out. There is such like a crime doesn't pay, like old, old school Hollywood of like, you know, pre-Ocean's Eleven. I'm sure there's other movies before that, but it's like this pre-thing where like the criminals are the good guys and like, you know, and they're going to get away with the money. And like, it's like, no, no, no. If you do crime, you will die because mm. of your sins. <laughs> I like it more just as the character beat of like- 100%. Well, that's- well, uh, you rumbled me, copper. Time to explode. I think that this person has done so many bad things that they do not want to go to prison. You know, like mm. they've, they've involved in so many fucking things. It's just sort of like, I'd rather die on my own terms. See ya. Like yeah, it's such absolutely. a, I think it's it's cool. It's awesome. I think this sequence is absolutely sick as hell. I wonder if they maybe shouldn't have shown his face doing oh, yeah, his no, little it's, head it's, shake because he I did a giggle a little <laughs> it bit. Is, it is funny looking. He does a funny little but face and then smoke comes out from under his collar. <laughs> I think that's why this film is a comedy. That's meant to be somewhat like, oh, wow. I like, don't think that moment is framed as funny. I think it's pretty grim. It's just a moment where I was like, if I hadn't seen modern special effects of like in the modern version of that, you probably see like a little blister turn up or something or his eyes would go red or something, uh-huh. but it's just a little his bit of smoke. His eyes would go red? Like the blood <laughs> vessels the blood in your eyes. Ve- like you'd start <laughs> bleeding through the eyes almost certainly. Yeah, yeah. Not as in actually. Almost right? certainly. <laughs> almost certainly. I the amount doctor. of times I've touched the third rail on a train line and boy, do my eyes get tired. Is it rubber sole shoes? So they were extremely scared of the third rail all through shooting, even though it was completely deactivated. Mm. And right. like they were told very specifically even though the third rail is off, we have isolated it all. Do not touch it. Treat it as if it's live. That's just good safety. Before this sequence, they had already applied the sparking special effects to the corner of his shoe, and uh, Shaw tripped on the way to the shot, and the sparks went off, and everyone freaked out because oh they God. thought he died. Oh and he God. just was like, my heart stopped for a second because even I thought it happened. Oh, shit. And then we just had to reapply the sparks. The train itself is still going. The passengers on the train are having this conversation about where are the goddamn red lights. Um, it really reminded me of Spider-Man 2, obviously. Sam, that's mm, kind of, it's the same good sequence. Stuff. of like It's like New Yorkers waiting for a train to stop. Like But I feel like it's kind of the overarching spanning influence of this movie and how, how it has touched, touched our lives in so many ways. <laughs> okay, I'll shut up. Finally, there's a green light at South Ferry. The train stops everyone's okay and then Mathau and Rico Jerry Stiller uh, look to find the guy who drove the train they go they get a list of stuff they uh, go to a few apartments and then he finally enters the apartment with Martin Balsam this is one of the greatest scenes I think ever put to film (laughs) it's so good but can I just (laughs) say we didn't mention and I need to talk about Jerry Springer when he jumps on the phone Jerry Springer 
Jerry Stiller. <laughs> My film is very different. Jerry Springer, Howard <laughs> um, Sorry, uh, we talk about Jerry Stiller. Uh-huh. Uh, when he jumps on the phone instead of when that when he's talking to yes, him yes, and it's yes. fucking mm. hilarious. He's like, where's blah, blah? And he's just like, what do you say? Even someone's got to pee. He's like, yeah, even, yeah, yeah. even, even great, great, men, even have great men have to pee. I love that's one of my favourite lines in the whole movie. It's uh, fucking great. Can, and I need to complain. So- there's the bit where Walter Matthau finds the cop that's been shot mm-hmm. and he's face down on the ground wearing the poncho. He, Walter Matthau looks down at him, figures out that he's the cop and he has long hair. So he goes, don't worry, ma'am. The ambulance will be here soon. Mm. That's the payoff. The, the payoff <laughs> of that entire thing is that Walter Matthau mistakes this long haired guy for a lady. That's all that goddamn work. I- didn't even hear that. that. And that is paying it off for me in my head. That's quite Honestly, funny. that's hilarious. Sorry, Seamus, I disagree with you. I, I heard it as, um, I I heard it, I didn't hear him say ma'am. Also- Yeah, I did and I think I laughed. That's funny. <laughs> also, no, I think that's I remember funny. it now it that is, you me. I'm like, That's yeah, a payoff. That's it's, pretty funny. This oh, movie is dumb. Not, this movie is a dumb it's, movie. It's setting, it so heavily sets up that it should be, I mean, this is a modern lens, but it's like, surely you, if you- dismiss the woman so much in this story being like a dame could never do anything and then you finally meet the cop and you just you you want it to be a dame that achieves something not a poncho a guy in a poncho that gets shot (laughs) to be fair maybe that's the reversal that even a a male cop got shot but it still ends on the dumbest joke and also Mathau like shakes him on the shoulder and walks away absolutely yeah he's not a good He's not good at his he job. He just does not give a shit about this woman dying on the ground. He's yeah. like, she's been shot. Yeah, these but people she did are not best. good people. That's why I enjoy this film. Because you're <laughs> like, you can just be like, what the fuck? Like that. So I didn't even realize that. I think that's funny. That so is really I, funny. Because it's, so <laughs> it's so stupid. It's so stupid. It's a dumb man. joke. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> if anything, it's now a. So angry. Kind of five and a half. Yeah, I might need to increase need to my update. score. <laughs> So we get this wonderful uh, yes. scene. Oh yes, the final <laughs> scene. Final Mathau scene. and Balsam. Balsam's trying to hide the hide the money. Uh, Mathau's just talking to him about his day. Balsam plays this wonderfully, and then finally, Balsam, as Mathau's just leaving, Balsam sneezes, and then Mathau enters, freeze frame on his face. One of the greatest expressions in all of cinema. Uh, I have seen this movie. This is the, my third time, I think, watching this movie. Still good. It's <laughs> that so never goofy. gets old. It's so funny. <laughs> Craziest facial expression. Um, I I, saw- okay, so one thing we've forgotten to we need to we need to go back and analyze this scene to to the ship because honestly, I think up to this point, Mr. Green mm. has been the sympathetic one. Really, mm. he seems to show remorse. He doesn't want to kill anyone. He actually says, like you said, no one would have to get hurt. Um, he gets like quite upset about the stuff. So when he's the one that gets away, I thought I was like, maybe he's the one. That gets away because you know, like on it. Like anyway, then we see him literally Scrooge McDucking on his bed with the fucking money, <laughs> and sp- it's wild. He's like, whoa, with the million, and it is <laughs> fucking hilarious. And I actually went because I said, I remember I said to my partner watching, and I went, oh yeah, maybe. He, I was like, I kind of want him to get away. Yeah, you yeah. do. I went, I kind of cut to that, and I was like, never mind. <laughs> just like, well, and that's sort of I think. Oh, the whole, I still kind of want audience. him to get away. It's also the money with Hector Elizondo's blood. On it. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's so ridiculous. But then obviously we have, you know, um, once again, my mate is back. Um, ben Stiller's dad is back. <laughs> yeah, your, your friend Ben's dad. Ben's dad. <laughs> my mate Ben's dad is back. And we've got a sequence where he hides the notes in the, the oven. oven. And then we've got another red herring moment where he's like, 
I'm gonna light my cigarette. I can't yeah, find yeah. a lighter. The whole scene, yeah, I'm yeah. just like use the oven, oven, and then he like, and then you think he's gonna. I was like, it's gonna go, either gonna go one or two ways. He's gonna burn the money. As soon as he went, I can't find a lighter. I, I went, oh no, he's gonna use the stove and oven. Like and he's yeah. gonna either open because well, if you if you like have a, a, a cigarette light on a stove, that's yeah, not yeah, gonna, yeah. that's not gonna burn the money. But I figured he's I not thought, gonna be like, mm, I'm gonna turn this oven on. Just, no, but, but I thought it was gonna be he because before he came over to help, him, I thought he was just gonna play with the things. Turn and then and then you can turn it. You can, if you could, like, if you turn the car, I thought he was just going to be like, absolutely doing it, accidentally turn one on. That's what I thought uh, was going to happen. Yeah, I was but then so certain the money was getting back. Me too. And then when he comes over and does it for him, I was like, okay, well, it's not going to happen. And then I was like, well, how's he going to get caught? And I was like, oh, oh, I know. Oh, I know. The old sneeze. The old sneeze. And what is it? Oh, it it's so good. I love um, this sequence. So, so much happens. The film ends on a classic dolly into Mathau's New Yorker, are you kidding me expression was what uh, one article kind of, I don't think it's an are you kidding me expression. I feel like that's it's the a, wrong description. I got you. It's an I got you it's expression a, or a, mm, isn't this silly? <laughs> so apparently Mathau was imitating his son's imitation of Charlie Chaplin. It's like Mathau with his son and they're like doing Charlie Chaplin expressions at each other. And so what Mathau did for that was his own son's imitation of Charlie Chaplin. Hey, Mathau, why? (laughs) (laughs) You're an actor. (laughs) And boy, did it pay off. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Why were you like, I know. You've got to use the whole pie. You don't use some of your life. You don't just use all the things like, you know, it's in a child. It's all of that stuff. What are you talking about? Elvis Mitchell in the New York Times states, it's like watching a marathon runner take a victory lap. He earned the medal and he wants the whole theater to know it. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yep. Okay, that is the best justification for that I've I've heard thus Yeah, far. yeah, yeah. So I'm going to talk about Hector's role in the film and mm-hmm. what we think he added to it and what we think, like, what was special about this character and how we think it kind of added to the film as a whole. I've obviously touched on that I think that, obviously, we have got, within the bad guys, we've got kind of a, a sliding scale of, like, who's the worst to who's the best, mm. you know? Mm. And we end up with, you know, him just being framed as, like, he is the worst one at the start. You know, he's this one yeah. that we're all kind of like, he's racist, he's sexist, he's a fucking natural sex pest, he is all these terrible things, even the big bad fucking hates him and thinks that he's horrible. Absolutely. And then at the end though, we realise that he is, the big bad guy is just as bad as him, if not worse, as the mastermind. Even though he thinks that he is above it all because he's like, he just is a different way. And I think when he shoots, Commander looks at him, they kind of have that moment. It's like, who really is, who really is the, the greater evil in this way? One's just like more controlled about it. I think that him dying via the third rail is interesting because it's like this character refuses to give up control no matter what happens. Whereas we've got Hector's character who is out of control I and unreliable. And so they are like just two ends of the chaos. To, yeah. I, I, I disagree that I think uh, the movie implies that they're both as bad as each other. You would call Shaw's uh, character far more of like the noble criminal. Like he's got his own 100%. rules. Um, but then I think I think Hector Elizondo is like, it's this very much like he's a beast. He's only, he's in it for the joy of it. I think he's painted as morally worse than Shaw. True, but I do think that Shaw starts that way in terms of how we're supposed to see him. He's supposed to kind of be like, I'm on the level with this guy and I get it and I, I'm like cool, calm and collected and like, but I think it's sort of at the end and he's like demise sort of suggests that that's not necessarily true. It's like at the end of the day, you're doing the same shit. You still shot someone. You still like, I I kind of read it like that. I think he gets to pick, the fact that he gets to pick his demise is like, even in that last moment, uh, not a condemnation of him, but I think it's more, I think it is more, I don't know. I don't want to try and like dive into the politics of the two different types of criminal, but there is a thing of like, 
if you're going to be a criminal, be like collected, be in control, have rules. Well, it's, it's as a opposed thing to- they talk about the mafia as well. It's like the mafia has a code. Yeah. And that code is kind of written down and like there's chaos within that and like all of that stuff and things can go wrong, but it's like you follow the like made men are made men and all that yeah. stuff. And the fact that he has been kicked out of the mafia itself <laughs> is like, he's- He's he, an animal. Yeah, he's an animal. Essentially. Yeah. It's a bit of- Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's but disgusting I mean, to Robert Shaw in some ways, even though, so I think you're kind of right, Charles, and then it's like, actually, I think, I don't, I don't know if the movie really has a point about this, but I, if it yeah. did, I think it would be something of like, ju- the dignity of criminals with a code is actually not so similar to a, a wild animal that is just acting on impulse. And like, I think there could be something there if you, if you wanted to say that about this. And is following code necessarily a great thing? We have so many instances of it happening with the good guys as well. You know, you've got people following like bureaucratic code, you've got cops who are not following the right, like you've got like, what do you do? You know, like mm. it's kind mm. of, uh, I think it is saying something a little bit about it. I think that I, I agree with what you're saying though. It definitely presents Hector Elizondo as the worst of the worst. If we're going to have to kind of go yeah. with that from the start. But I think he has his point where he's like, at least I do my own killing. He's kind of like, at least I'm honest about it. Yeah. That's sort of his character arc, what he says. I do also, in talking about Hector Elizondo, um, in terms of what he does for that performance, is that he talks about it in terms of like, he's a guy doing a job. Like from his point of view, he does, he never wants to play him as like a villain or anything. Mm. He very much treated him as this guy who's just could be a tradie, could be anyone else in the street. And so it's his actions that make him a crim- uh, criminal. Yeah. He says, um, I could do this job in my sleep. You yeah. Know, like he, he really does yeah. talk about like a job. I, I agree with that for Which sure. Which is kind of crazy to think. <laughs> I mean, obviously he's not the smartest tool in the shed because it's like, you don't do this job in your sleep. What do you mean? Like mm. you, you're a gun for hire. That's like your, must be your main thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. like clear, like also uh, a lot of them are war veterans and I'm assuming that Hector Elizondo is probably- No, here. he's- uh, He's pre- not. No, he's not because- um. Two of them are found not to be uh, when they find the ID cards on the body because uh, right. he's like a professional killer. He's a made yeah. man. And I believe Mr. Blue also is. Robert Shaw is Mr. Blue. Do you mean Mr. Brown? Mr. Brown, yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. Both of them, they have their ID cards yeah, yeah, in their pocket. Both, yeah. One, guys, <laughs> <laughs> don't take your license to the heist. You know what? You raise a strong point about what? <laughs> I just, I don't think these guys are good at their job. But They're I, the I professionals. Like, I like that you've got, the mastermind though, and, the, and everyone else is a hired gun. You know, like, mm. so it kind of makes sense that mm. it's not going to go super smoothly in this, yeah, and he kind of loses and he treats it like he's taking his army into thing, but it's like, you, you can't, yeah, anyway. you can't, yeah. control, you can't, you can't control, control this. It. Yeah, but I, yeah, I do, I do think there is something there in the whole, like, at least I do my own killing, that line, which is interesting. Yeah, I think obviously we need someone to really actively hate from the start and mm. have a little bit of menace in there because it is a comedy, you know, it's like, all a bit like, you know, over the top. And even, um you know, we have banter between the main criminal and our protagonist a lot. So I think having someone who's actively menacing does yeah, he, work. Yeah. He, he is kind of the stakes of the movie mm-hmm. for, for large sections of it because yeah. the stakes of the like money and stuff, as I was kind of talking about before, it's like that never really grows any sort of like legs, but Hector Elizondo's character and Robert Shaw's relationship with him is kind of the tension, especially on the train. Well, like that, that is that is the thing that kind of frames Shaw as the most sympathetic of the criminals. Is that for a bit in a big way, he and Mathau have the same goal, which is all the the all of the passengers get I, home. I think, I think Martin, uh, Mr. Green, is certainly seen as the most. Absolutely. Sure, but then Shaw's thing is, my goal is for everyone on this train to get home safely, Mm. including me and my men. 
he doesn't want to have to kill anyone. And every time that he, and the time that he does, you watch him pick and it's clearly disappointing. He's like, when someone says, uh, do, do you want to choose a shalai? It's like, will it make a difference? He's like, he wants to get through this as cleanly as possible. Whereas Elizondo doesn't care. Mm. I disagree. I think um, he, like, he's willing to go through it. I think, yes, he would like it to be clean because that means that he's going to have a cleaner getaway. I think he, I don't think he morally, like, I think when he shoots him, I think he, you see him as a stone-cold killer that he is. I think it's revealing. I think he doesn't, I think those things I aren't think mutually it, exclusive. Yeah, but I think it kind of actually questions, I think we're kind of kind of presented that way and then when all that does happen, he's relentless. You know, he's just like, no, no, like, sorry, this is the time frame. You know, like, I'm, I will start killing, I will yeah. get the kids off. He will, he'll fucking do it. Like, if you don't, well, don't fuck a, with him. But there's also a reason why he gave him the time to get to the station. He bent right at the end. I think that is a sign that he doesn't want to kill people. Because he could, he, I think it is pretty clearly in the movie that he, he has this hard rule, but I think maybe it's just in Shaw's performance. He doesn't want to have to do it. I think it is, I think it is in his performance that he's set himself these rules, but he is like, they're rules for him. They're restrictions for him. And and his bending on it, I think is as much, a failure of his empathy. Uh, you know what I really think it is. I think that it, it is the idea of the difference between a military killing in the military and killing in the mafia, and killing for sport versus killing for a job. I think that is like not for sport, but like for personal reasons. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think it is framing like this is a military guy. He's going to run it like a military operation. His attitude towards death is he regrets it, but he sees it as his duty. And I, well, I think that is painted in a more positive light. Do we want to talk about who earned their paycheck this week? Who was like your, your favorite kind of supporting part of this movie? I, I want to proffer up David Shire. I think that the music we kind of already talked about a little bit. I think the composition of this um, movie is incredible. Um, I've got a little quote. I apologize. But while you guys are looking up your um, <laughs> things, I will just read this quote because well. I think it's really good. Um, David Shire says, when you're working as a film composer, you're helping a director fulfill a vision that they initiated. And I didn't want to write the same old stuff you'd heard on other action pictures. It took about a month for me to find a solution to the picture, but it was certainly worth the effort. The sound I wanted was a kind of organized chaos that was expressive of New York. It wasn't that I specifically wanted to use that method of composition and Joe Sargent couldn't care less if it had been 10 tone, 12 tone or five tone, but if the serial technique helped me to control a score that seemed on the verge of falling apart. I was fortunate that in Pelham, where my music was fighting fighting a subway train joe wanted to hear my music it was nice to get an opportunity to make a lot of noise with that kind of an orchestra the tone of a film generally determines the musical style and i was happy to score an action picture as prior to that my work had become associated with more delicate and subtler scores um and i think this is sort of something that we talk about uh <laughs> what we talk about when we talk about holes um uh, is when you have a um group of people who are all working um, kind of at the you know peak of their powers sort of thing. And mm. I think this movie is a big example of that, whether it's Jerry Stiller or David Shire or the cinematographer or the rats in New York. Like this has that feeling of like, uh, I've called it before like joyful filmmaking. Of yeah. Like I'm sure it was a miserable time, but there is a sense of joy around the movie, around the, the construction of the movie that, is something that is very hard to kind of put your finger on. And Mm. then when you see, when you, I see quotes like this, or I see, you know, the way, the way Hector Elizondo talks about it, like that's the stuff that I love about the movies. Off the back of that though, in terms of controlled chaos, I'm going to go Owen Roisman, who is the cinematographer, Mm. because one, 
bonkers fact I found out about this. Um, there were no. They didn't use cameras. <laughs> they didn't use shot lists. That's crazy. He like so. Uh, Sergeant came from a television background, mm. apparently very different. And each day they would come in with just the sections of the script picked, and then just be like, "Ah, uh, these are the shots I feel like." Like he didn't have a shot list, and so the uh, the DOP was so fucking competent that he could just be like, "Oh yeah, it was, it was fun." It was like, "Oh well, we'll pan in, we'll pan out. You know, I'll figure yeah. it out." We're shooting in a subway station. How are we going to get the lights to work? Yeah, that's crazy. He, he was the cinematographer on the French Connection as well, so he'd had train experience right. before, and so he developed this technique where he pre-exposed the film grade so that it was slightly overexposed from the get-go to get better figures in the shadows and then he also took he used all the lighting fixtures already in the subways but replaced them with uh from like 150 to 240 uh 250 watt bulbs mm. so they were twice as bright between um fast eddie and this deer who actually <laughs> sorry are taking it back you're uh, throwing yeah. out everything i just said about roysman fast eddie earned <laughs> yeah, his goddamn paycheck he fucking did. i think i agree with both of those and i would have absolutely gone probably with either of those but you guys already said it so i'm gonna go with someone who's an actor i think that i would go with tom petty who plays kaz Dollar ones. <laughs> you love Kaz. Because You're crazy for Kaz. I am. I am because this character, just you know who he is. The minute he walks in, he's just fucking angry, flustered, <laughs> off him. it, hates the new rules, hates everything. Thinks hates he's, women. Hates, hates women. women. <laughs> I went, true, babe, true. Um, no, he comes in and he, honestly, this actor absolutely is so hateable but so likable at the same time where you're just like, he just, he makes me laugh. I, I laughed at every deplorable thing you said. And then when he shot, I was still like, why is this kind of funny still? Yeah. I just think he really brought the stress of the office into this film, which is a huge part of it. The thing I like the most about this movie is that I think it's, and I'm going to sound like fucking Harry Styles on mm. a press conference for, um, don't worry, what's it called? Don't, don't worry, worry, darling. darling. So I'm about to be like, it's a real film film. I was about <laughs> to say that genuinely. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I yeah, do yeah. think that, and Lincoln, I think this is probably why you enjoy this film a lot because you know that you hate television. Um, this would not work as a TV series. Absolutely fact, not. it's been adapted for a miniseries. When? It was 1998 was a TV miniseries. It's been adapted three times from the novel. And the 1998 one starred, you know, Adama from Battlestar Galactica? Yeah. And he plays Walter's character. Oh. Um, yeah. And we've got obviously the 2009 version with John Travolta playing the bad guy and his name is Ryder with a Y. Hell yeah. Very funny. His name. Rain Rider. Yeah. Because he rides um, the train. <laughs> but I think that it works well because it's just, it's one, like it has to all happen in a pressure cooker of an hour. It's like a yeah. classic technique where it's just like, we've got a one hour time limit and we're going to use it yeah. and we're going to make it all happen here. Whereas it had been. I mean, that being said, if you watch any Dragon Ball Z episode, there's a literal timer for three minutes. It goes over seven seasons. So, you know, you can make it work for TV, it's I guess. Sick. I like this movie a lot. I think Hector is going to be interesting to see out of all of the people we've talked about, one person we've talked about, <laughs> two people, um, out of what we talked about in terms of Beth Grant played a lot of similar characters. Mm. In this scenario, this is a huge departure, which we mentioned at the top of the episode. So it's going to be fun and exciting to come to see whatever happens in, I haven't seen the next one we're doing. We're doing American Gigolo, Paul Schrader's American Gigolo, which I I, I think it's 1980 film, but I, I, I'll need to look it up. It's interesting, these first three movies that we're doing for you, Seamus. I've not seen American Gigolo, it's the first, I, I, I haven't seen it. Um, 
I'm going to go ahead and guess it's going to be problematic as well. So problematic. <laughs> and then pretty woman, oh boy. <laughs> so I've, I'm the I'm the lame SJW of this podcast. Yeah, now. you're the... <laughs> okay, good to know. Yes. Thank you so much for wa- watching and or listening, however you are consuming us and our delightful shit. Um, please, if you can, rate, review, and subscribe us on like iTunes and Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all of that stuff. And that's the end of our show. Thank you so much. And we will see you in two weeks.